Did you know that your body and well-being are being continuously threatened by something you don't even see? That threat is based on electromagnetic radiation, or e-smog. On an average day, you get exposed to 20 to 40 sources of negative EMF, such as your Wi-Fi router, Bluetooth headphones, cell towers, even the dirty electricity hidden in your walls. This radiation creates a long list of problems that impact your everyday wellness and well-being. Check out the Centropics Bubble. The bubble is a breakthrough miniature active neutralizing frequency device that literally fits in your pocket. The bubble uses EMF radiation protection, which makes positive electromagnetic frequencies that are aligned with your body and the earth. The bubble is programmed and charged by impulses from a specifically developed bioresonance radiation technique. Frequencies that counter interference fields, known as electrosmog or electromagnetic pollution, are recorded as information by the bubble. Best of all, you can take the bubble with you wherever you go. Rediscover the joy and wonderful passion of being alive and reclaim your vitality and energy. Just go to getthefrequency.com or click the link in the description to get your Centropics bubble today. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today my guest is Chaz of the Dead. First, a couple of announcements. Check out our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News. It's also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network, where we feature some of your favorite podcasts from our community. We also have a few new additions, so go check that out. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Rockfin is where you get our premium content. You also get all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin for only $10 a month. Just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or click the link in the description to sign up now. If you want to help with a donation for the documentary production, you can go to supportfkn.com or we have a PayPal link right in the description. Anything is greatly appreciated. Any donation of $5 or more through supportfkn.com, you get access to Corey Hughes' JFK Forum and tons of amazing information going into his new book, which will be dropping in October. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Chaz of the Dead. Chaz is an author, adventurer, consciousness researcher, and paranormal investigator. He is chief researcher at Paranormality Magazine, an English teacher and tutor. 
He has traveled the world working odd jobs and investigating the paranormal and strange in over a dozen countries. His research continues to push boundaries as he endeavors to further his contributions to the paranormal field. Chaz, welcome back. How you doing? Great to be here. Glad to be back. Um, excited to get into uh, some more weird stuff. Oh yeah, always, man. It's great to have you back. Had a great time last episode. Today we're going to be discussing your new book about the Betts Sphere, which is a mysterious metal orb which was found in the woods of Fort George Island. And there's tons of high strangeness and insane stories surrounding it, which we're going to talk about today. So this is going to be great because once again, I get to learn something today because I actually know very little about the Vet Sphere mysteries. So this is going to be great. Um, remind the audience a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book. Yeah, so I'm a, a paranormal investigator, researcher, explorer. Um, I like traveling around the world and looking into paranormal cases that maybe don't really get the the attention that some of the other cases do. Um, you know, I'm not writing any books on like the the famous haunted houses of America. No, no, no. I go to those super niche ones, and with that in mind, I like to try out some pretty crazy and niche experiments from psychedelics to weird technology, which I used with this new book, um, to all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it's a, 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 a different kind of paranormal investigation, I'd say. So if you're interested in, in any of that stuff, check out my stuff at chasofthedead.com. Yeah, um, but yeah, this this new book um, around the, the bet sphere, um, this one kind of I, I kind of stumbled on by accident. Um, I had heard about the Bet Sphere before, and it had always been told as this kind of UFO story that was probably a hoax and kind of dismissed. Um, and it, for those unfamiliar with the case, it was uh, 1974 when this metal sphere was found on, on Fort George Island. Um, and uh, this family began to you know tell their neighbors like hey we have this weird sphere that moves around like come over and see it and from there it spread out to local news and then soon national news and it blew up to the point where the navy got involved um j allen hynek uh famed ufologist got involved um it really became this this kind of sensation uh, over the course of like a month um uh in jacksonville florida and it had always been like, oh, it's this UFO sphere. And at the end of the month, these debunkings came out that it was a piece of mundane technology. It, it was from a, a gauge pump, this a piece of industrial equipment, nothing, nothing to see there. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the end of the, the story as I had known it. Um, well, I, I had gone out to Fort George Island to to go see um, this this house where this place had occurred, kind of as like, you know, some paranormal tourism, and I couldn't find it. And that was the first thing that kind of drew my attention to it was the elusiveness that this house, uh, I knew it was somewhere on the island, but no one seemed to know where it was. No one had in instructions on how to get there. And so... Before my second visit, I did more digging. I looked, used some satellite images and stuff and found out where the house was and um, discovered it was beyond a, a little 
um, no trespassing barrier at this cultural park. And uh, had to do a little sneak past that to, to see this house. And when I went there, it was one of these locations that immediately, it was just odd. You know, I go to a lot of places, a lot of bizarre stories, hear a lot of strange stuff. But very few of them have that tangible feeling of, of strangeness. Um, and then when I began to dig in further into the house's history, I discovered that there was a second paranormal case file, if you will, on this house that no one that I certainly was unfamiliar about uh, in regards with the Betts case. And as so often happens, the UFO guys and the ghost hunting guys aren't communicating. And uh, so there were these two separate incidents joined together by this house or these two separate cases occurring in the same house. But, you know, all of these years, no one seemed to bring up the fact that, hey, isn't that weird that a UFO showed up inside this haunted house? <laughs> no one came up with the connection. And so that was kind of one of the first uh, big things that drew me to this case that, again, it's one of these cases that represents many facets of the paranormal. It's not simply, oh, metal sphere that moved around. It's, is it a UFO? Is it? No, there's something of high strangeness going on here. It's not simply um, the the simple story we, we thought it was. Um, and then when I looked in further to the UFO information from the area, I discovered some really relevant um, information in regards to our, our current understanding of UFOs and some of the videos and stuff that the Navy has put out. And so I, I ended up discovering that the the Bet Sphere was actually just one chapter in a a story of high strangeness that has kind of encapsulated this region at the the mouth of the St. John's River. Um, Fort George Island kind of being the center of it, but the island surrounding it and up and down the, the river, all kinds of super bizarre stuff from Bigfoots to um, river monsters to uh, UFOs. The, the gamut of phenomenon seems to appear in this area. And so I, I decided I had to, to dig deeper. I had to investigate this place. Yeah, man, I love it. Uh, Whereabouts is St. George Island in Florida? So it, it's Fort George Island. It's off of the St. John's River. It's just north of Jacksonville. And there's actually a couple ways to get out there. You can um, uh, drive around the city. Um, there's you know, bridges over the St. John's through downtown Jacksonville. And it takes a, a while to get there. And then there's the Mayport Ferry. There's a little ferry that'll go just right across the river. It takes a couple minutes. Um, you usually have to wait in line, but it'll dump you right off uh, on the other side of the river there. And um, it's an island. It's kind of bordered on one side by the ocean, but then on the rest of the sides by one side by the St. John's and then the rest of the side by like these little estuary rivers. It's kind of... Um, uh, you know, tiny little streams and canals. And so it's really marshland. It's very Florida swamp mm -hmm. um, out there at, in the summer. It's hot and then it's wet. Lots of bugs, um, lots of bugs during my investigation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, no ghost orbs can be captured in that place, but oh, lots man. of mosquitoes. <laughs> right on. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, pretty wild terrain though it wasn't always that way 
Um, I was just about so, to ask you if there's any interesting history about the island or the area. Oh, yeah. So the, the history of the island was something that, again, I, I was one of the things that I was compelled me to, to write the book and tell this full story. Um, so the island's first, it was occupied for thousands of years by the Timucuan Native Americans. Um, and this tribe occupied it for a long time. But the first Europeans to arrive were actually the French. It was Jean Ribault um, in the 1560s, I believe. And he landed there and was his mission was to set up a French colony. And the Fort George Islands actually credited as the location where the first Protestant prayer was prayed in North America, which has all kinds of occult implications and things, no matter what your beliefs are. It's either the start of the spread of Christianity or the start of a genocide. Either way, um, both, but (laughs) again, heavy occult implications. Um, And then from there, there was they set up a fort, um, Fort Caroline. And it's not sure exactly where Fort Caroline was, but on Fort George Island, there's a, a hill, a hill they call Mount Cornelia, because we don't have many hills in Florida. It's, it gets this, uh, it's an exaggeration. It really is just a, a small hill. But it's the largest hill, the highest point in Duval County and the whole surrounding area. So it was the most likely location for a, a fortification. Um, and so this Fort Caroline was there. And... Um, 45 miles to the south, the Spanish landed and the French and the Spanish were in the middle of a a brutal conflict and, of course, battling over the new world. And so um, Jean Ribault got his his settlers together in this war party and sailed south to, to attack this Spanish settlement. At the exact same time, the conquistadors were marching north over land and this hurricane hits. And the conquistadors are able to, to weather through this hurricane, but the, the French are shipwrecked. They're totally blown off course. They're blown far south of the Spanish encampment um, and shipwrecked. None of their equipment, none of their little horses, guns and cannons, all of it, they lose to the sea. Um, <clears throat> so the Spanish show up to this fort that's pretty as, essentially unarmed, and they... <laughs> wipe out the rest of these settlers. One ship full of settler, French settlers escape. Um, but they took total domination. Then they march back to their settlement and they hear from the natives that, oh, there's a bunch more French dudes to the south that are unarmed. And um, so they march down there and meet them at another inlet, another river. And this inlet today is called Montananza Point, Massacre Point, um, because the Spanish massacred Revolt and his men. And in these areas, there's all kinds of ghostly legends. People still go there, do ghost hunting things um, to this day because of the massacre and get all kinds of, you know, EVPs and French and all kinds of weird stuff. Um, And that settlement that the the French were trying to destroy would go on to become St. Augustine, the the oldest uh, European city in North America. And so if the, the tide had turned, the battle had gone a different way, Fort George Island might very well be the oldest city in America wow. as far as, you know, European standards go. Um, 
And so since there was a native settlement on the island, the Spanish did open up a mission on the island. And they documented a little bit, not really known, you know, much about the native tribe because they, you know, the Spanish were busy spreading Catholicism. They weren't taking great notes. But there is known that there was a, a native tradition there. Um, they they performed rituals. They drank black drinks, these strange um, potions and things like that. Um, and, you know, the Spanish tried to convert them the whole time. Uh, and eventually the, the Timucuan would kind of uh, succumb to disease and conquest and eventually uh, morphed in with the Seminole tribe. Um, who who outlasted a lot more than um, the other tribes in Florida. And so that tradition kind of faded away, especially as the island was sold to um, plantation owners. And it was owned by several plantation owners before it was purchased by Zephaniah Kingsley, who the island still has the famous Kingsley Plantation. It, it's his... Uh, it's his uh, plantation house that still stands today. And when you drive through the islands, you're driving through these, you can, you literally, it's a drive through history. You drive through these shell middens. You see the oyster shells stacked up, caked in dirt um, from the native settlements. You're driving past these tabby stone ruins. And these were the, the homes built by the slaves and for the slaves who worked on the island. Um, and then at the very end of the island, you have the grand, um, uh, uh, house, you know, the plantation house, because it, where the plantation house sits, there's a river there. So that's how it used to be. The main mode of transport was that river. It was pretty isolated back when it was a plantation. Uh, but Zephaniah Kingsley, who ran this plantation, was a super weird dude, um, especially for the time. So he really so he um, where to start with Kingsley. I guess um, visitors to his his plantation when he owned it would note that uh, in the dining hall, massive portraits of naked black women all over it. He wasn't a Christian. Man, he, he liked. Uh huh. He adopted the Senegalese religion so he could marry multiple wives, um, and he married a bunch of, of slave women. Um, one of whom, Anna Kingsley, would end up running some of his plantations for him. She became like the number two in the whole operation. Right. Um, and he had these super bizarre beliefs at the time. He believed that kind of progressively in some way, but he believed that mixed race people were superior to black people and white people, that they were actually the 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 Aryan race <laughs> as right. it were um which again didn't make him very popular amongst the other um plantation owners in that area but under the Spanish system of slavery because he owned the plantation when it was Florida was still controlled by Spain the Spanish system of slavery was based on how dark your skin was so you know, the the mestizo class, the mixed race class, especially in Latin America, was held at a higher regard. And that was kind of used to keep order. Right. right. Um, and so this worked well with his weird belief system where his because he wanted his children to inherit all of his wealth. He had a bunch of these mixed race children. And uh, under the Spanish law, you know, they, they still didn't have 
great rights. They were still treated poorly, but they could own land and they could do these things that under the U.S. they couldn't. And then the U.S. purchased Florida from Spain. And so Zephaniah Kingsley, all of a sudden, his political beliefs became uh, an issue uh, amongst the, the local populace. And there were all kinds of weird little scrimmages and conflicts fought between him and other plantation owners and the Seminole natives in the area. There was this weird kind of like political gamesmanship. Some were sponsoring the Indians and they would like attack these other plantation owners. Uh, John McIntosh, the famous general from Georgia, um, he owned the plantation before Kingsley. Kingsley bought it from him, and then they like became bitter enemies <laughs> for the rest of their lives, um, wow. mostly on these these weird racial issues. Um, but it, it's around this time when lots of ghost stories start popping up around the island, and uh, because Kingsley had these strange beliefs, um, he didn't teach his slaves Christianity. He thought that was a waste of time. He gave them working hours, and after their working hours, they could go and, like, sell fish or make pottery, and eventually he let them buy their freedoms, freedom from him. Like, they could work their way up and buy their freedom. Um, it, it, really bizarre guy. Not to say he was a good guy, um, because there was one incident recorded by the U.S. Navy that... Um, they this was at the time after the transatlantic slave trade had ended so you weren't allowed to bring any new slaves in from africa you could trade the slaves that were already in the u.s and you could trade their children but you couldn't bring in any new slaves well this boat was the slave ship was caught off the coast of florida with 300 slaves in it and they were like well, where where are you going with all these new slaves this is illegal you can't do this and they're like well we're, we're going to kingsley plantation and the Navy was like, well, you know, we don't have food or barracks or clothes for 300 people. Like, we literally can't do it. So they gave them over to Zephaniah Kingsley and gave him like a slap on the wrist. They were like, don't do this again. You know, this is illegal, but just this one time we'll allow it. Um, so, again, he was still a ruthless, you know, capitalist. He was still trading human beings, even though he had these weird racial beliefs <laughs> right um but uh he also um the the primary ghost legend that stems from this time period uh is the legend of old red eyes and this is a it's a story of it's kind of like the freddy krueger backstory of a, a serial killer who killed children he was a slave and he killed other slaves children and you know some other dark stuff and so he was lynched by his fellow slaves. And the first time I read that, I was like, oh, well, that seems like a white guilt version of this, <laughs> this story. But after getting to know Zephaniah Kingsley, that's quite possible. Like he let, let, had uh, he had respect for the slaves and their communities and would allow them to do, you know, their own justice and things like that. Um, so potentially true. And the legend is there's a burning pair of red eyes that still haunts the island to this day, um, pops up in the, the woods and in the shadows. And that's the, the ghost, this angry ghost, um, which, of course, that red eye archetype pops up a lot in the, the paranormal, whether it's UFO abductions, the Mothman, um, all the cryptids have that that 
telltale eye shine, whether it's red or yellow. Um, and it's a thing I've experienced personally as well. Uh, when I was a child, I saw a pair of, of red eyes under the bed, um, hopped back in bed. Next morning, I wake up and I'm looking under the bed to find anything, maybe electronic, anything that could have created this, this red eye illusion. And my older brother sees what I'm doing and he asks, did you see the red eyes too? And I can still remember how creeped out he was when he asked because he had had the same experience. Uh, and for me, that was the first moment where I was like, oh shit, paranormal shit is like real. Even if that was just a shared dream, like that's still beyond science as we know it. Right. Um, it was kind of the aha moment for me. Um, and so, yeah, this red eyed archetype pops up again and again and again in the, the phenomenon. Um, and go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I love it. I love the history. Um, if you, if there's anything else that you wanted to say about it, go ahead. But uh, I do want to get into a little bit more about the bet sphere itself and some, some of the high strange stories surrounding that starting with how was, how was this found? And you said, uh, some of the earliest accounts they, from the family said it was moving. Do you want to learn how to remote view? Now is your chance. The International Remote Viewing Association is offering eight weeks of remote viewing classes instructed by my friend Michelle Freed. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity starting Saturday, September 3rd, 10 a.m. Pacific. The course is only $150, and for members of the IRVA, it's only 110. Just visit irva.org slash events slash registration to sign up now. Yeah, so, um, well, let me bring the timeline a little forward. So, yeah. Civil War, slavery ends, um, the plantation that is Kingsley Plantation, it turns into, by the early 1900s, it turns into this fancy Gatsby retreat area. They open the Rebalt Club, named after the French explorer. Um, and it becomes, yeah, a hangout for the Gilded Age Jacksonville elite. Um, and the guy who built this club is named Mellon Greeley. Uh, he's considered the dean of Jacksonville architects. And another member of this club was a man named Nettleton Neff. He was a Chicago-based railroad engineer and executive, and he had purchased the land on what is Mount Cornelia and wanted to build a home. And he enlisted Melvin Greeley, the, the best architect in town. Again, this is the time where architect was like the best job a person could have to build this super strange castle-like home. Melvin Greeley drew up his own interpretation, and they ended up building this home that still stands roughly today um, called the Neff House slash Betts Castle. Um, and it's on this strange hill, they built this strange castle looking haunted house, haunted looking house that quickly becomes haunted. And it's not without reason because the Neff family never moves in. Tragedy strikes the Neff family. First, Nettleton's wife dies in a mysterious fire. Um, and no one knows the source of this fire. The newspaper said it was, yeah, it was a mystery. Very strange event. Um, next, his adult son, who's going to Harvard, he disappears. Two weeks later, they find him hanging in an apple orchard. 
Uh, it's ruled a suicide. And then finally, Nettleton Neff follows suit and he shoots himself in his office. Damn. And their boxes were moved into this house, but the family themselves never moved in. And at the same time, the Great Depression hits. And the, this hangout, this fancy schmancy Jacksonville elite playground that was Fort George Island falls into decline and it's quickly swallowed again by the Florida swamp. To this day, you would never know it was there was a golf course and no, you drive through a canopy road and it's thick woods and a house every once in a while. Um, and so it becomes the, this house, this castle looking structure kind of becomes the center point of the folklore. People start to see ghost lights and hear strange voices. Um, they start to, to hear organ music wafting out through the doors, even though an organ's never been in the home, um, strange shadows in the, the empty halls. And it becomes the the local haunted house. It's literally house on haunted hill. It's swallowed by the woods, and and people kind of dare each other to go out there. And ooh, his old red eyes around the corner. Um, and it's at that point where Jerry Betts enters the story. And Jerry Betts is an enterprising woman. She has a real estate company and a trucking company. Um, she's the mother of four children. Uh, it and it's the 1970s. So all of those things were very difficult. Being a woman was already difficult, period. And she was really a pioneer in these uh, male-dominated industries. She even ran for um, state congress, and the newspapers at the time ran an article um, about her and several other women running for congress. And the, the title was "How Will These Women Keep House If They're Elected." <laughs> <laughs> and like really just again she was fighting a lot of uphill battles and one day she was talking to some people about financing a film project when she heard about one of the these people mentioned that there was a big old haunted spooky house out on Fort George Island and she went out there and saw this super unique home at, you know a home that was as unique as she was and was sold she was like I'm buying it I'm renovating it uh, I'm living in that creepy house. And she did. She moved her family in and they lived in this house and they experienced the strange phenomenon. This was before the bet sphere even entered the equation. They were experiencing poltergeist activity. They had a, a dinner a party one night and everyone at this event heard a crash in the kitchen. And they left the library where they were drinking to the kitchen, opened the closed door and there were dishes shattered on the, the center of the floor. But all the cabinets had been locked, like with one of those little tiny key locks, and they were still locked, um, as if the, the dishes had teleported out of there. Um, Jerry Betts would see the, the ghost lights floating around the property and hear strange voices. And she always kind of had a rational explanation for it. She was interviewed about these things, and she was like, oh, you know, it's probably phosphorus in the soil making the lights. And... The voices, it's, maybe it's an echo because the, the hill's so high and there's people fishing in the inlet and maybe it's just their voices echoing. Um, rational lady. And it was um, around this time when in 1974, she and her adult son were walking around the island when they noticed this strange metal sphere. 
And there's a couple different reports. Terry, who found it, says he just saw it sitting there. But others said there was a small bushfire on the island that got their attention. Um, there's reports that where the ball was sitting, the plants were all dead in a circle around it. Um, either way, they picked up this ball and thinking of the history of the island, thought maybe it was important, significant, maybe, you know, somehow a, this a old cannonball that had remained shiny for some reason. Mm. Um, and so they brought it home and it sat in Terry's room for two weeks doing nothing. And how um, approximately how three. large was this thing? Um, so I think it was was 22 inches in diameter. So it, it's about a little bit bigger than a basketball, I would say. Okay. Uh, to kind of give you, uh, and again, metal smooth, uh, slight shine to it, but there's some wear, there's some scratches and, and chips and dents. Yeah. Um, but he's it's sitting in his room and he's there too. And he starts playing his acoustic guitar and the ball seems to react to the music. It, it starts to vibrate and hum uh, and almost whistling a, a tune in response. Um, and soon after this, the, the ball starts to move around under its own power. It starts following people around the home, starts bouncing up and down the stairs on its own. And, and it's seeming to have this kind of intelligence. Um, and there are witnesses who who end up seeing it. As I mentioned before, the story, they tell their neighbors and their neighbors tell their friends. And soon the story becomes, a, it blows up. And one of the first media people to arrive on the scene to kind of investigate is a man named Ron Cavitz. Um, and he's a radio host, late night radio host. He kind of does the, the like the local coast to coast uh, paranormal show mm. um and so jerry thinks that you know this guy might have some answers he might under know what what the hell this thing is and ron remembers going to the house um you know this this strange house going into the, this room and seeing the sphere sitting on a glass table um and it's just sitting there and he's having a conversation with jerry and he wants to take more pictures of the family and of the house because it's you know so strange and unique and they're going, so they start to move towards the back door to go outside. And the ball rolls from the center of the table to the edge of this flat glass table and kind of hangs off in this gravity-defying way and, and wobbles there. And Ron says it was like it was trying to get our attention. It was like, hey, don't forget me. If you're going outside, like, I want to go with you. Like, what are you guys doing? Um, and that's kind of the, the intelligence it had, right? It, when it's, we say it was intelligently controlled, not like it was, you know, controlled by Mr. Spock. It was more like a cat or a dog. Um, and interestingly, the, the family's toy poodle, it hated the sphere. If it was held next to it, it would freak out. It would whine and whimper and like, wow. didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, but the family, because of this kind of cute behavior of the sphere, they started to grow kind of like an affinity towards it. It became like a second pet. Um, and more and more people came in and out of the house looking at this thing, and um, no one had any answers. And eventually, um, Jerry asked the Navy, who have a station just to the south of this island, to look into the sphere. And so the the Navy 
they do. Jerry's husband at the time, he works for them as a contractor. Um, he's an engineer. And so they had some kind of, of personal relationship. Um, but I discovered in my research that the Navy, that station in particular, probably had some other reasons for looking into it, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but they investigate the sphere and supposedly they tell the family one thing that, yeah, there's some kind of weird internal mechanism inside the sphere. We don't know what it is. We, the first x-rays we used weren't strong enough. We had to like get better equipment. This is truly strange. Um, but Jerry being the, the clever businesswoman and, and knowing how uh, men might try to play her on this, she draws up a contract stipulating that um, the Navy has to give the sphere back if it's not dangerous and it's not theirs. Um, and the Navy gives her this report. And so she's like, okay, cool. Well, can I have it back? Cause it's not dangerous and not yours. And supposedly, according to a family of the friend uh, of a family of the friend, a friend of the family, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, a Navy captain showed up to return the sphere. And on this day, he, before he arrived, Jerry received a phone call and it was from Mayport Naval Station. And they were like, is the, has the guy arrived yet? When he gets here, have him call me back. I'm like, okay. So the guy shows up and he's like, oh, here's your sphere. Yeah, definitely something weird going on there. And Jerry's like, oh, there was a, a phone call for you. You know, you got to, the base said, this guy's called you and to call him back. And the guy's demeanor changes almost immediately. He goes and he calls the number back and Jerry can't hear what's being said on the other end of the line. But according to the story, um, he she can tell he's getting chewed out, right? He's getting yelled at it's a lot of yes sir sorry sir yes sir and after he hangs up he pleads with her for almost a half an hour to let him take the ball back to the base um and after she refuses the navy releases the statement to the public saying oh the sphere is nothing nothing to see here completely mundane piece of technology oh it's um perfectly balanced so if you like touch it even the slightest it'll roll and and that's that's what that is. That's why it seems to be moving. Nothing to see here. Um, and it's at this point where Jerry decides to ask um, J. Allen Hynek and this panel put together by the National Enquirer, uh, UFO and professor scientists to try to decide what it is. Um, and Hynek's entry into the story is also very strange. There's... Um, all kinds of weird activity with this panel. Terry arrives and there's actually video of Terry, um, her son with the sphere at this panel talking about it. But shortly after that video is taken, um, the, the panel starts doing their independent tests on the sphere and they get a phone call. And this phone call is this panicked, freaked out phone call from um, Florida, from Jacksonville. And it's Jerry, supposedly it's Jerry, and she's saying it's emergency. Come back home immediately. Like something's gone wrong. We you, you need to get here. So Terry and one of their other sons who was with them, they call back their home immediately, but they there's no answer. And Jerry at this time, her phone had been ringing constantly from UFO people and local investigators and national investigators. So she was in the habit of, you know, at the nighttime, just leaving it off the hook because it would just keep ringing if she didn't. Um, and so, uh, they figured 
when they couldn't get back to her that that was going on. So they got on a plane and the, you know, from new Orleans to Jacksonville short flight um, and rushed back out to the Island. And Jerry was like, what, what are you doing here? Uh, what do you mean an emergency? You, you left the sphere in new Orleans, go back and get that sphere. And Terry did. He went back and grabbed the sphere and left before any of these tests could be conducted fully because they thought that, the, the panel was up to some kind of, of trickery uh, because there was a, a $10,000 award if you could have definitive proof of a UFO or something like that. And and so they thought they were trying to cheat him. And Jerry, who was a successful businesswoman, she didn't care about the money. She just wanted to know what this thing was. Um, what's really interesting about that is uh, John Keel and his Mothman investigations experienced a lot of that same phenomenon with these strange phone calls and doppelgangers and impersonators. Um, None of the investigators at this time would have known that because uh, Mothman Prophecies was actually published that year, but after these events. Um, And so these phantom phone calls, this impersonating thing, it's something that pops up a lot with these investigators, especially around these high strangeness cases. and so Jay Allen Hynek, he felt so bad about this incident and he thought it was all, you know, a misunderstanding. Uh, and it, it probably was, if we consider that paranormal <laughs> explanation. Um, he went out to the home and spent a night at the, the house and investigated the sphere there. And there's even reports that he had it sent to a third party lab later on to be tested. Um, but the story of him spending the night is an interesting one. And there's lots of speculation that Heineck himself ended up stealing the sphere. Um, So there's some mixed reports from friends of the family about how this night went down. Some reports say that Heineck asked for the, hey, you know, I hadn't seen the sphere move today. Can I keep it in my room while I sleep and maybe it'll move in the night? Others say he was caught out in the middle of the night that he didn't have permission. But He was either way, he was supposedly caught tinkering with it in the middle of the night. And there's some speculation that he swapped it out because he was carrying this big doctor's bag with him when he arrived and when he left and no one had seen what was inside. Um, And years later, his son was doing a press tour for the Project Blue Book TV show that came out not too long ago. Yeah. Um, And he mentioned that... uh, one reporter asked him, do you, what do you remember about growing up in a UFO house? And he brought up this uh, incident where he was, oh, you know, there's lots of weird stuff. We were kicking around this metal sphere from a case in Florida uh, in our basement when we were kids. We saw we had all these displays, blah, blah, blah. And that little segment began, it stirred on that story that he tinkered with it. He stole it. He swapped it. Wow. Um, but either way, by the end of this month, Jerry Betts was convinced that something had been done to the sphere or the sphere had been swapped out because it was no longer behaving the same way it used to. Um, And she even had a more test done and it showed that one of these internal pieces, because there there were three spheres inside this larger sphere. And when she had these um, second tests done, it showed that one of these spheres had been pulverized. It had been turned to dust. Um, and so she wasn't even sure it was the, the same sphere anymore. She was honestly thought that, that some treachery had gone down. Mm-hmm. 
And this was around the same time that the media began to d- put out these debunkings for it. Um, and uh, <clears throat> she was kind of, at this point, okay with it. Because she thought that either the Navy or Hynek or someone was messing with her. But also, it was hurting her other business or businesses. Her phone was ringing nonstop with UFO calls. Mm. And she was expecting real estate calls and trucking calls. It was... People were showing up at her house at all hours of the night, just knocking on the door, asking to see the UFO. It really became a a huge hindrance um, on her life. And to this day, she doesn't give interviews or talk about the sphere. It's, you know, she's lived this really storied life. And for her, it's a footnote. And it's the only thing people want to talk about. So she's kind of like, eh, fuck it. She's actually a really talented painter. You can find some of her paintings online. she she still does have a, a small presence out there. Um, but yeah, doesn't answer questions about the spheres. Um, and there was a, a anonymous family member who came forward and claimed that the sphere, whether it's the decoy or, or not, was given to a, a third party for safekeeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where the sphere wound up and how the, the sphere chronicle ended. Man, now you said that the Navy might have had other reasons for for having an interest in this when they first started investigating it. Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked that because that is the the next step um, in the story. The Sphere Chronicle ended, so it would appear. That's how Mm. the story kind of always ended. And again, that story, the story to this point is just combining two paranormal files. The ghost hunters who thought this house was haunted and then the UFO hunters who thought this sphere was a UFO. Yeah. But I discovered some more interesting information, and not really discovered it because it was blasted out to everyone's face, and it had to do with those three um, Navy UFO videos that were released in 2019 that that have kind of changed the world's perception about UFOs. Um, There's the the Tic Tac video, and that one's been made famous by David Fravor. Um, It's that one that goes in and out of the water. That was filmed on the West Coast in 2004. Um, But then the other two, there's the gimbal, which has kind of become the face of the footage, right? That's that black and white saucer that rotates. Um, And then there's the Go Fast, which shows a a big metal sphere Mm -hmm. right above the ocean. And it's hauling ass. It's going real, real fast. And there's been a lot of conversation and discussion and debate about these videos, whether they're real, what's the significance, is it a psyop? But in all of those conversations, no one's seemed to notice that where they filmed those two videos was only a few miles off the coast of Fort George Island. Those those, uh, pilots were aboard the USS Roosevelt, which was stationed at Mayport Station, and they were doing military drills with the French when they recorded these... these. Uh, well, they actually had just finished doing these military drills with the French, and when these UFOs had appeared, and they, they accidentally recorded these. The exact same location within miles... And this GoFads video, judging by the angles, is heading in the direction of Fort George Island, where 40 years ago, the Navy had one of these metal spheres that moved on its own, and they investigated it hands-on. Wow. 
And so that brought my attention to Mayport Naval Station. I thought, that's weird. They have two real close-up incidents with these spheres in the same location. That's bizarre. Um, So I started to dig deeper. And I discovered that this station has had a couple of close encounters with UFOs that even um, J. Allen Hynek at the time wouldn't have been aware of. There was one incident pre-Bet Sphere where the, the station was buzzed by a UFO. It hovered over the station. Fighter jets were scrambled. It was like full, full-blown alert. And the, the guards and witnesses were given the classic, you know, don't tell anyone about this. You didn't see anything. You can keep your mouth shut or you'll be court-martialed. Um, the classic shutdown. And years and years later, these guys were like, yeah, remember that time we saw the UFO when we were stationed in Mayport and they filed this report. Um, And there was another incident between the Bet Sphere and the filming of the GoFast video. Again, another close call with um, this weird spherical object. And so it would appear that Mayport Naval Station might be, they might know a little more than they're leaning on. When you consider these close encounters and this hands-on research onto one of these spheres. The fact that they just so happened to film those videos that day seems to be like a pretty high coincidence in my book. I'm beginning to believe that there's a chance that they knew exactly what they were doing and that those objects were going to show up um, during that time period. And that's something you hear from a lot of uh, 14 researchers from this idea of window zones that they they go through periods of activity. They're on some kind of cycle and that there, there's quiet periods and then there's active periods. And it might be that they've figured this out at Mayport Station, that they've had a long enough interaction where they know that these spheres are going to show up every once in a while and they've been making steps towards acquiring it. Um, there's also an even more fun theory that the sphere um, filmed in the GoFast video is the Bet Sphere, and that that wow. sphere it somehow broke out of Mayport Station where it was being held and started hauling ass, and they scrambled and they filmed it like as a last minute to see, wow. and it was actually meeting up with the gimbal craft and not leaving it, um, which super fun (laughs) there's not really any evidence to support that but that would be awesome if that was true oh hell yeah so again it's an interesting story and it's a story that for for decades now has been yeah some people made up a fake story about a sphere when in reality the the tirade of high strangeness around it I would certainly suggest that this case is is something legitimate, that there is something going on, you know, even from the get. Um, and there's a great podcast, Oddball, out there that's like a five-part documentary podcast. Um, Lindsay Kilbride, she was a great help on this project. Her research was phenomenal. And it's from that angle, like, is it fake? Is it real? Like, mm. what happened? Um, but I'm of the opinion that Jerry Betts, had no reason to make up this, no reason to lie about this story. Her family has no reason to lie about this story. So why would I, you know, taking them at their, their face value. All right. They got a sphere that moved around on its own. Let's figure out what's going on here. And um, I wish I could say I did figure it out, but there's still a million possibilities. There's the, the possibility that the sphere itself 
has nothing to do with UFOs, that it is just a, a tulpa, if you will, a man, the, the paranormal phenomenon on the island, it kind of got centered at that house, right, for once it was built, built on the highest point, all of these legends that had already existed on the island had kind of moved there, then this family moves in, and they move those spooky legends of their spooky house into the sphere, it becomes the, the planchette of the house which is the ouija yeah. board and it, it starts to act on its own purely from you know this weird pseudo psychic phenomenon um which entirely possible then again you have the navy filming these these spheres flying around <laughs> just outside the island you also have accounts of sea monsters and these other creatures in the water around the island so it's it's one of these locations that it it's just full of high strangeness. And the book goes into each one of those details of, of weirdness uh, from Bigfoots to the, the ghosts from the historical stories to, to every little, little piece. It's um, I think the first attempt to, to tell this story um, from a big picture perspective. Yeah, man, it's uh, certainly know, it's fascinating, dude. I love the the how deep you've gotten into it so far, and what you've come out with. Uh, now, earlier when we first started talking, you were you were telling the audience about how you sometimes use psychedelics and kind of different forms of technology during your investigations. Were any psychedelics involved in this invex investigation? And you said you'd used some type of uh, technology to help you out. Um, yeah, so. I, I didn't use any psychedelics in the house because I, I have this rule that you should never break the law while you're already breaking the law. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so since I was already trespassing and sneaking in, yeah. and trespassing is a harsh word. It's government land. I pay my taxes. It, it belongs <laughs> to me. Uh, it belongs to all of us, which is I'll get into as well in a minute. Um, but uh since i was doing that i wanted to have my wits about me in case a park ranger was like what are you guys doing here i could be able to talk my way out of it yeah. uh not so much if i was on my face off my face on on mushrooms right um but as part of researching this this project i did do a kind of a cross-country road trip to a bunch of different locations where light spheres and the the spherical uh ufo seemed to pop up uh, Brown Mountain, Marfa, Texas, uh, the Bragg Road in, in Texas, these locations where light spheres and spherical objects have an association with UFOs and ghostly phenomenon, similar to the house. And I did conduct a, a mushroom experiment while I was out in Marfa, Texas. Um, so the first night... There's the there's an area there off the highway, the Marfa Lights Viewing Center. Like it's a celebrated part of the town. And it happens so often that like, yeah, there's a viewing center. You can go out there and pretty reliably they'll show up. Um, so the first night I'm out there and there's a bunch of people out there. And there's this guy telling a story <clears throat> or pointing at one of the uh, a light off in the distance. And he's like, yep, that's one of them. And I'm like, really? That's one of them? And he's like, yep, I've seen them before. One when I was a kid, one flew up to my school bus and like inspected the school bus. They're definitely like intelligent. And that's one of them. And I'm looking out there. I'm like, man, that's just a light in the distance. This guy's full of it. And then sure enough, 
darts up upwards and does this kind of weird swishing motion back down and then kind of like fades away in this way that I've never seen any car light or plane light. It clearly was something strange. And so the next night I go out there and I take some psychedelics and there are tons of light spheres and they're dancing around and doing all kinds of stuff. And there are other people there to witness with me. I've got a, a sober trip sitter I've got, and then people are just showing up to the center to, to look for themselves. And there was clearly an increase in phenomenon though. I didn't get any of them to fly up to me and interact. Um, <clears throat> but so for the house, I decided to take a different approach. And um, this kind of came to me synchronistically um, when I was discussing this case with other investigators at, of all places, a Bigfoot conference. And um, <clears throat> this, uh, this Florida-based team, paranormal team, had teamed up with some Bigfoot um, hunters. They, they've got their project out now, the first episode, The Skunk Ape Experiments. Um, really intriguing stuff. They're trying psychedelics. They're doing along the same line. It's it's our this new wave of paranormal, um, and they're on the cutting edge with it. And so we were getting along and talking about it. And he was like, um, "Oh, you got to try out this device we have." And he told me about the ghost code device and the ghost code theory. It's also called quantum paranormal, um, but I'm not going to call it that because it doesn't really have anything to do with quantum physics or mechanics or it's kind of like you know it, often points they the this theory uses the word quantum like a comic book writer <laughs> uses it right like radioactive <laughs> used to be in the 50s like oh it's got magic powers it's radioactive that's why right. <laughs> it's quantum that's why uh, but the ghost code theory uh it comes from patrick jackson and he's this um eccentric in, uh, inventor out of the the uk um <clears throat> he's an it guy and he claims to, he's reverse engineered the paranormal and he believes that these metal spheres are responsible for pretty much all paranormal phenomenon on the whole uh, poltergeist activity that's because you got an invisible metal sphere in your house Bigfoot, that's just an invisible metal sphere trying to scare you away. <laughs> it's, he's got this, this theory that it's all invisible metal spheres. Um, and he's based this off of some ghost hunting stuff. Um, that's it. Um, <laughs> it let, let me say there's some, some logical issues with the, the theory at the goal. Yeah. Um, well, like, uh, it, it's fun, though, like EVPs, right? So if you're in a, in a really old castle and you, you've seen, like, ghost hunters do this, they, they get their EVPs and they play it back and, like, it's a spooky voice saying, get out. But they're in Bavaria and the ver <laughs> so the voice should be speaking, like, high German from, the, like, the 1100s. All right. He says the reason that is it's because it's a sphere and the sphere is, like, trying to come up with uh, – a, a warning to scare the human so it adjusts it to whatever the human is around it it's kind of fun yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of fun he's got all these videos of ghost spheres moving around and then videos of um ufo spheres moving around and they actually do seem to sync up they seem to move in a similar fashion um again the issue with that is those 
those ghost spheres are bugs. They're just bugs. <laughs> They're not really. So it's, it's a really good theory, but it's it's kind of built on sand a little bit, as yeah. a lot of the paranormal stuff is, because a, a lot of it's built, a lot of it's 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 nonsense. Yeah. Um, not to say it, it's fake, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it, it, there's no tangible information to be achieved. From, well, you said something oh, about it earlier, and I've been saying it for a long time. I think paranormal investigators, ufologists, uh, Bigfoot uh, researchers, everybody needs to come together and compare some notes here. That's the only way oh, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna get forward and figure out any of this stuff, right? Oh yeah, and, and it is happening. It is, um, and you know, while I I might rag on Patrick Jackson's theory here and there it, it represents a step forward where mm. it's a guy from one of these traditional ghost hunting backgrounds recognizing that there is a connection to ufos now he's taken that connection a little too far right, i right. think as happens also all, all ghosts are ufos <laughs> i think that's a little bit of a, it's again it's like saying all ghosts are you know dead pirates from the 1800s it doesn't the logic is it's a it's a hop and a skip, you know, and that's how I feel about all paranormal cases. Most of them have that jump in logic, you know, a haunted house, the, this door moves, shuts on its own. These things are moving around and teleporting. So it must be a woman who died here 200 years ago. Like that's, right. again, that's a huge jump to make with absolutely zero you know, actual evidence backing up other than a woman died here once, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's, and this happens again and again. And that's why I'm more likely, I, I lean more towards the, the Tulpa esque theories and those ideas, because um, you do have this new wave of researchers and, and there are the groundwork's been laid out for us by, by people like Jacques Vallée, um, and, you know, others who, who recognize that there's some relationship to our consciousness, that these entities aren't manifesting without us. They're, they're, we're a key element in this, uh, this puzzle. And that key element's the same thing we're still trying to figure out. It's the, the melon. It's the brain. Something about how our consciousness interacts with reality. There's some unknown physics, unknown mechanism there. And within that mechanism is where these entities lie. Whether they're a ghostly phantom or they're a UFO sphere, they're, they're manifesting to a certain extent to our expectations. Um, and, you know, there's dozens of cases. When, when you look at famous window areas um, and these famous stories, Mothman and things like that. There's always a um, Pascagoula, Mississippi. That's another favorite of mine. Yeah. There's always an ancient story before the UFO story, right? Uh, Point Pleasant was cursed by Chief Cornstalk, this native chief unfairly killed, put, put a curse on the land and all kinds of spooky shit happened back when he did that back in the 1800s. Um, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, these two guys are fishing on a, a stretch of river. They're abducted by these metallic-looking aliens. They've got, like, pointed uh, ears and a point on their head, no face, um, kind of like the silver metal appearance. 
they're hit by a purple light and they have this classic abduction experience. There's dozens of books written on this case. It's considered one of the best investigated cases. The local police like tried to catch them out in their lie. They did polygraphs and they like planted a recorder in the room to see if they were like coordinating the story. Um, none of that. These guys passed all of that, that inspection. And so, um, this stretch of river though they were fishing on this tiny little stretch of river just so happened to be the singing river. And it's called that because in the 1700s, the French governor of Louisiana was traveling in the area and they heard this ghostly song on the water. And his native guides told him that there was a tribe that used to live on the other side of the river and they were at war with this other tribe and they knew they were going to lose. So instead of, you know, being enslaved, they decided to chant this war song, this death chant and drown themselves in the river. And to this day, people report hearing this weird ghostly song. And it just so happens to be the location where these two guys get abducted by this, this, undescribable experience there are a- those aliens don't look like the grays they don't look like any archetype it's one of these truly high strangeness situations <clears throat> and that that seems to be the the situation and so when it comes to theories like the ghost code and things and even tulpa theory stone tape theory extraterrestrial theory whatever the theory is they're all top-down explanations right they're Oh, well, it's aliens and that, and then they're finding evidence from cases that support that. If you take the bottom up approach, like I try to take, you have entities at the bottom, which appear in a variety of ways. Then you have some archetypes, you have some grays, you have your shadow figures, your hat men, your old hags. But once you get up to the the very tippy top of this, this pyramid, Um, You do have two things. One step below the top, you have these spheres, spheres of light. Doesn't necessarily need to be physical metallic spheres, but a sphere that has, that radiates light, whether it's shining light because it's metal or it has its own luminescence. And those pop up over and over and over again, whether it's ghost cases or it's UFO cases or even Bigfoot cases. Often there's dozens of reports of Bigfoot riding on top of a light uh, from a light turning into a Bigfoot. Uh, I write about in my book, a case not far from Fort George Island of the Barden Booger. It's along this um, St. John's river there where he's a Bigfoot, but he's always been known to carry this lantern. So you always see this glowing light before you get close. And then you see the Bigfoot. Um, The glowing light orb is the archetype that probably is most common throughout the various paranormal phenomena. But right above that sits the key piece I've discovered in all of of these cases, and that is a story, some kind of origin story. It doesn't have to necessarily be connected, like Singing River. That weird voice phenomenon probably has something to do with that abduction but the stories themselves are really different right one's a very old colonial ghost story the other's a very strange 1960s feeling (laughs) abduction story Mm. but for whatever reason having a story like that having a strange occurrence in a place uh whether the story is true or not it allows people it's the uh 
original psychedelic. And that's something I've been reminding myself, right? If you've pictured any of the things I've talked about, if you pictured the Betts house or the sphere in your mind, you just had a little psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. And we do it so often. We dream, we read, we listen to podcasts. We take this for granted, that internal imaging. But that is a, that's a shift in consciousness. And it seems that instead of taking the, the giant shifts with psychedelics, you don't need to do all of that. It seems that little shift started by a story, by a strange legend, that shift seems to be all that you need to kickstart one of these experiences. Because it is, it's the most common thing about all haunted locations. There's some kind of story. There's some kind of strange story to it. Um, and, and that is, again, from the bottom looking up. <laughs> yeah, man. Dude, I love it. I love the way you're looking at stuff. I love the work you're doing. You're also starting a petition to get this this castle-like home recognized as a historic landmark, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that was the the other thing that really wanted uh, convinced me to pursue this project was that, you know, this crazy home with all of its history, it's it's in decay. And the reason I reached out several times to get proper permission to investigate it and we were denied and mostly because it's just the house is falling apart. They don't want anyone in there getting hurt. Um but, you know, in the name of journalism, I decided <laughs> that I had to go in there and, and figure out, um, you know, what was going on and, uh, you know, really appreciate this house. Because whether or not you believe in ghosts and UFOs, it was built by a, a famous architect. It, it has this, and that's enough in most places to get it <laughs> recognized as a historic landmark. You have you know, just random homes in a lot of cities, that historic landmark, you know, some famous guy built it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Melvin Greeley has a ton of historic landmarks across Jacksonville already. Um, and it's in this cultural park where they have Kingsley Plantation, they have the Rebalt Club, it sits in between these two um, in the woods, it would be a perfect addition, it would be a perfect add on to this, this trail of, of history. Um, it sits on Mount Cornelia, where, again, there's been native occupation. There was, you know, there's uh, a missing slave graveyard somewhere in the woods in that area. It, it could be a great place for a museum and for, you know, historical preservation, not just paranormal investigation. It, it's uh, a piece of our cultural history. And it's a stunning looking place. You can see some of the photos of it on my um, Instagram <clears throat> at Chaz of the Dead. Um, and it's it's really like a castle. It really has that that presence. It looks like it should be in Bavaria <laughs> on a hillside, not in a swamp in Florida. Um, and, you know, we have so few castles here in the U.S. that we definitely should do all we can to preserve um, the, uh, the, the ones we do have. So if you liked any of the stories, if you found any of this even slightly remotely interesting, please go sign that petition. Um, so we can get, uh, a lot of names on there and get some recognition to this and place. Where can and where can they go to sign the petition? Um, you can go to change.org. It's save the bets house. Um, I'll send you a link to put in the, yeah. the bio of this episode. So click in the, find it in the bio and you can also find it, um, at chazofthedead.com. 
um, all those places. And yes, please, please sign it, share it with your friends. If you love weird stories and history. And again, it's one of these places where if we do preserve it and we put people back there, weird shit's going to keep happening. It's going to be one of these locations where the, the phenomenon's going to keep manifesting. I don't know why, but it will. And, you know, if we, the, the first step as to figuring out that why is making sure we have locations like this um, in the public domain that, that can be investigated. Awesome, dude. I love it. Uh, let the audience know where they can find the book as well before you take off. Um, yeah, you can find uh, the book is A Place Between Time and Space. You can find it on Amazon as well as at paranormalitymag.com. Um, that's then.paranormalitymag.com. Um, and you can also find links to all that at uh, chazofthedead.com slash books. Um, so, yeah, check out all my social medias. Very one note at Chaz of the Dead for all of that stuff. <laughs> and absolutely. Uh, thanks for letting me come on and, and share this story. And again, please sign that petition. Yeah. Buy the book. That's great. That's awesome. But please, please sign the petition. Um we, we really want to save this place um, and uh, hopefully others can appreciate it like I've gotten to. Definitely. Get on there, sign the position, petition. Chaz, thank you so much. This was fantastic, and I'd definitely love to talk with you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Peace. Awesome. Till next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. Talk in tomorrow. <laughs>